Okay, so we're starting again on uh, Eternal Rewards number three. And uh, this study is going to be called Overview of Eternal Rewards. And it's part one. There'll be two parts to this part because uh, there's quite a lot of teaching on eternal rewards. And I think it really helps if you do understand them. So uh, so let's just start the study. We start with the introduction and uh, we just cover a little bit of familiar ground. And in this study, I'm going to actually list for you the main categories of rewards. And then we're going to look at two of them and go through them in more detail. Next time around, we'll go through some of the others. So one of the great themes, of course, that Jesus had was the teaching on eternal rewards. He's constantly talked about it because it motivates us to look beyond temporary and to eternal. And so uh, in Matthew 16, 27, he taught, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So the word reward means to recompense or to pay what is appropriate, what is due. So what he's saying then is that there is a day when the Lord will come and he'll come in power, he'll come in glory, and that will be a time when he will reward or acknowledge in a very uh, specific way the labors that we've done in serving him. So the second thing is there's uh, many different kinds of rewards. When you start to read through the book of Revelation and then through other places in the Bible, you find many rewards are listed of different kinds. And, and it makes sense. God is extremely creative. And uh, if he can create the universe and create all the details of creation, He's uh, got unlimited resources to find ways to reward us which are appropriate for us and recognize what we've done. So in Revelations 2 and 3, he describes a number of rewards and he talks in Revelations 2 and 3 uh, to the churches and talks. Firstly, he reveals himself, uh, an aspect of his character. Then he talks about knowing their works and, and uh, honors them for the works they've done. Then he points out the bit they need to come to grips with or overcome and then makes promises to the overcomers. So if we're familiar with the significance and importance of different rewards, then it's a huge motivation. And so becoming aware of it, it requires a response. Once you're aware of it, you just need to actually then do something. Having the information won't be enough. It means to, it's meant to change our life and give us motivation. So in uh, Colossians, uh, for example, Colossians 3, 22 to 24, we saw this verse last week. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. For whatever you do, do it heartily, as though you were doing it to the Lord and not to men, knowing, and here it is, you do it this way, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying there in the verse really is, that when we know that God is watching every detail of our lives, every aspect of our heart and thoughts and motivation, and that he will recompense us, we can then face up to boldly the, uh, the difficulties that we have with people, with working with people, with serving people. And of course, he's talking to slaves who are constantly or frequently abused by their masters. And he didn't address the issue then of the slavery or the injustice. He put in their heart, an eternal perspective so they could overcome in the midst of their difficulty. Third thing is rewards are not given automatically. Um, there would be uh, many Christians who would like to think, well, we'll all be equal or everyone's the same. But actually, 
Although we are of equal value to God, nevertheless, he relates to us differently based on our response. The rewards are not automatic. They come if we fulfill specific conditions. So, for example, Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I'll grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and am sat down with my father on his throne. And here's the second one. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So notice there, in both of those passages, there is a promise to someone who does something. To him who overcomes, I'll give this place of authority with me. In the second passage there in John 12, anyone uh, serves me, let him follow me. And then he says, my father will honor him. And so he talks then about authority in the first passage, and then he talks about honor in the second passage. So God desires to raise our level of responsibility and authority in the coming kingdom. God desires to honor us in the coming kingdom. And notice there in that first verse, to overcome means to subdue or get the victory over something. So when at some stage we'll go and look at the churches of Revelation, but in each one there was something to overcome. And the last one of all was the church that was lukewarm. And if you look, of course, at the church now, you'll see lukewarmness is a significant problem, but one of the greatest promises are to those who overcome lukewarmness, passivity, and apathy. The Number four, the small sacrifices now have a huge recompense in eternity. Small, small things. So it may seem big to you, and for some people, little is very big, but this is what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 21. You are faithful over small things, or few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Notice the contrast. Few things, many things. The key is being faithful. Here's another one in Luke 19, 17, the parable of the pounds. Well done, you are faithful and very little have authority over 10 cities. Now notice, very little, 10 cities. Wow, that's just no comparison right there. And what he's trying to do is using the story is to say the recompense will far outweigh any sacrifice. It's not like, well, maybe... It's actually, to when you understand what he's offering, it so overshadows the cost and sacrifice that people are motivated and willing then to lay down things. Uh, in Le Hebrews 11, 6, we saw before that God is a rewarder. That means he recompenses or he is extremely generous and extravagant. So we can trust that God is going to give a big payday. You know, people look work and they look forward to getting a big bonus at the end of the year. Well, for a believer, we, we get blessed in the journey, but then there's a massive bonus at the other end. Massive bonus out of proportion to everything. And so uh, even though we may have temporary difficulties, they, we are persuaded because of what we know to persevere because today's not my payday. It's still coming. So uh, Jesus promised them, the disciples in, in Matthew 19, 29, everyone who's left houses or, or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake, namesake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Notice he said a hundredfold, meaning the maximum possible return. So he's trying to convey to us that if we have to sacrifice if following the Lord means alienation from people, if following the Lord means we lose or leave behind things, he says, nevertheless, there will be a hundredfold return. And frequently, there's a portion of it is in this life. And so we see, if you look at our lives, you can see the blessings that abound. So the blessings are actually tangible and visible in lots of different ways. However, they're not the real rewards. The big ones are to come. That's, the, that's what makes you then 
excited about living every day and not afraid of death because how could you be afraid of death when your big payday's ahead? And you can't be. So then, so you just then, so now we've talked about the rewards. And let's go down. I want to give you a summary of them. And um, uh, this is an overview. And it's just one way of grouping them together. There's so many mentions, somewhere between 18 and 30, in different ways. But they do cross over and, and um, connect with one another in different ways. So here they are. Uh, so number one, uh, eternal intimacy. Reward number one, eternal intimacy. Uh, which means that there is a realm of intimate relationship with God that's reserved for those who overcome. In uh, a scripture here in uh, Revelations, uh, I haven't put it in there. Anyway, it's, uh, He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out. I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven. From my God, I'll write on him my new name. Now I'm going to talk and explain what that means shortly. It's Revelations I think, maybe 12, I'm not sure. Um, so when he talks about writing the name on someone, he's talking about having a deep intimacy with God as a father and a deep intimacy with Jesus Christ. So we're going to go into this area or passage of eternal intimacy in more detail shortly. The second significant reward that's offered is eternal authority. Eternal authority. What that means is that we are given uh, different work assignments with different levels of authority and responsibility and power. And that will be forever. Uh, it's not like a temporary thing. Right now what you have is temporary and it keeps changing. And when you see that what you do now is just your assignment for now, it's your training assignment. So every time your assignment changes, it's just more training, different assignment. And how we fulfill our assignments determines then what God entrusts in eternity. So when I look at my journey, there was an assignment to teach in a high school and run Christian out work there in the, among the children. Then there was an assignment. I had to leave that behind, have an assignment with a Christian school. And then the time came for that to end. There was an assignment pastoring. And then the time came for that to end. There was an assignment then and that involved uh, starting and planting another church. Then there was an assignment leading a movement. And then the, the, the assignment shift it comes to an end. So if you understand your life is just a series of assignments, then you stick with your assignment until God says it's time to let it go. Then when you let it go, it's easy to let go. It's just so simple. It's not like it's just having the right perspective. If your identity is tied up in your assignment, you can't let it go. You just use everyone to, to make yourself feel better because you've got a, a lack inside that God wants to meet. The third, um, uh, and, and we saw the scripture in Luke 19, 17, if you're faithful over very little, you'll have rulership over cities. So thirdly, eternal glory. Um, so God intends to manifest his glory. It'll be in a number of ways. One will be through a resurrection body. There will be other ways God will manifest his glory, but it'll be in different measures. So in Matthew 13, 43, it says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Reward number four, the Bible describes eternal garments. And so there's quite a number of scriptures that refer to garments of different kinds. And the garments will vary in glory depending on how the believer lived. So if you go to a, uh, to a special function, you'll notice how everyone dresses up. They dress up in their best. If you go to a graduation, for example, you'll notice how they dress up and they have different kinds of uh, aspects to their clothing. And when you look at it, you know, oh, wow, oh, that's a master of science. Oh, wow, that's a PhD in arts. You can recognize it from the different uh, clothing they're wearing. And so it will be that in eternity, 
we will be clothed in garments, garments of glory, and they will uh, probably have different kinds and styles and color and, and God's creative and all of that. Uh, but they will indicate the life we've lived on the earth. And Revelation 3, 4, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So we're not clear exactly what the garments are, but they will be aspects of God's nature and his, his glory. Uh, reward number five. Uh, reward number five, the Bible describes victor's crowns. Victor's crowns. And so we'll look into this uh, in next week. But a crown is a, a reward or an acknowledgement that you've run a race and, won a, and, and you're the victor. You've won. So always with a victor's crown, there was something you overcame. So God, some will receive crowns because of their private victories. And in James 1.12, James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love him. So without going into too much detail, our love for the Lord is demonstrated by obeying him and overcoming temptations which are frequent in life. And each temptation is a chance to prove the quality of our love and our faith. So when we overcome or endure temptations and pressures, then God's approval comes and we receive reward in the next life. Uh, reward number six, honor and praise, honor and praise. And uh, in the eternal kingdom or millennial kingdom, uh, we will receive varying degrees of praise from the Lord. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't say, well done to everyone. He actually will be quite specific and acknowledge each person's life. So we see in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, uh, don't judge anything before the time uh, until the Lord comes, then each one's praise or affirmation will come from God because God knows the hearts, he knows the intents, he knows what's really going on. So what he's saying, or the context of it is, don't judge people, don't figure you know what's really going on in their life, you don't really know their heart and intent, but God does, so leave judging to him, and when the time comes, uh, then everyone will receive the praise that's appropriate, because God who sees all will reveal and acknowledge what's worthy of acknowledging. And so there's varying degrees of praise, and we, we saw in Luke 19, verse 17 to 19, how the man's commended, well done, good and faithful servant, uh, you're also over five cities. So there's honor and praise. So in other words, God will publicly and openly honor each of his children for what they've done. Uh, reward number seven is riches and treasure, riches and treasure or treasure in heaven. And uh, Jesus spoke about laying up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where, which is incorruptible, neither moth nor, wrath, moth nor rust destroys and it can't be stolen. Matthew 6.20. So Jesus called us to, to, uh, to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. So what that must mean is there's things you can do which cause an accumulation of wealth or reward from God in heaven. So it's quite good to study the scriptures. What are the true treasures then? What are the real treasures of life? And you'll find that they're not what you think they are. The real treasures are usually not what you can touch with your hands because you've got to leave them behind, they're corruptible, they're the things that can't be touched. So for example, wisdom is better than riches and gold, because if you have wisdom, then, then wealth and whatever will come to you. So, so that's a whole other series of studies that we'd have to look at as to what are the true treasures in the kingdom of heaven. Because if you'll labor for the true treasures, then you'll gain other things as well. Okay, and then finally, vindication, vindication. 
there will be vindication before one's enemies. Listen to this in Revelation 3.9. He says, Indeed, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. I'll make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. So what he's basically saying is that uh, people um, misunderstand us, people shame us, they, they accuse us, they criticize, they laugh, they mock, all those kind of things. And then some people actually persecute and oppose Christians and believers. And what he's saying is that there will come a day when God will vindicate or he will uh, validate the choices we have made before those who have uh, made fun of us or laughed at us or belittled us or even persecuted us. So that means it doesn't really matter what people are doing. You can bless them because there's one day you'll stand in a place of honor and they'll be in a place of shame and God will be saying, well, you had your day and you laughed, but here I want to tell you my opinion, which is an eternal opinion. So this enables you then to, to see how if you, get the, if you get the concept of these rewards in your heart, you can walk through all kinds of stuff because they, they just run off you. They don't, they're not important. And so in looking at the rewards, the first three deserve special attention. Um, uh, eternal intimacy, eternal authority, eternal glory. Um, and they require us, we have a look at them especially because they are things uh, particularly related to our original design as sons. When God designed us to be a son or a daughter, when he created man, he created us for these things. One, intimate relationship. And notice then one of the major rewards is intimacy with him. Secondly, he created us to exercise authority and dominion on his behalf. And in the coming kingdom, one of the rewards is the level of authority and dominion appropriate for what we've done on the earth. And then the third one his glory, we're called on the earth to represent the Father or show his nature, what he is like. And in doing that now on the earth, allowing him to transform us so we represent him in his nature, uh, in, the, in the age to come, there'll be a glory on our life. We'll go into those in more detail. Okay then, so we've now got an overview of the seven kind of ca broad categories of rewards. And now we want to look at the first two rewards. And I want to go to them in a bit more detail. And uh, so... The first one we're going to look at is the, the issue of eternal intimacy, eternal intimacy. Eternal, what does eternal mean? Eternal means it, is, it goes on with no time limit on it. It goes on and it does not cease, it does not stop. It is forever ongoing. Uh, intimacy means a close personal relationship where you become known by someone and they become known by you. There's an, a, a revealing of hearts to one another at a greater depth. So, of course, you can understand in, in all relationships, intimacy or close connection grows and develops. And even when you think you know your wife, you don't really know her, there's more to learn. <laughs> so with God, no matter how much we think we know of him, there is more to know. And Paul describes it as the unsearchable riches of Christ or the excellent knowledge of Christ. So uh, in, in looking through this area of eternal intimacy then, clearly it's related to our preparation now. So I want to go through several descriptions of it. So in the Bible, they don't just have a heading, eternal intimacy, and then explain it all underneath. No topic is like that. <laughs> the, way topic, the way God lays out the Bible is he puts a little bit all over the place like seeds in a bag and you've got to hunt for it. And when you hunt for it and bring it together, you'll find there's a bit on it here, there's a bit on it there, there's a bit on it there, there's a bit over here. There's a bit, in fact, there's been a bit right through the whole Bible if you just knew what to look for. So they use often, because this is a spiritual concept, they use 
stories to help you, oh, that's what it is, wow. So, and you look in the Old Testament, there's stories, like uh, there's a story of Isaac and uh, his father sent out the servant to get a bride for him. And there's all these details about the bride and the finding of the bride, which is a referral to God himself, searching to find people who will have a love relationship with him. And there's all sorts of characteristics about the bride. Then you find there's the story of Esther. And Esther's a story about a bride, about a, a person who was selected. Why was she selected? Well, there must have been some reason for being selected for the role of greatest intimacy with the king. So you see many stories like that. And if you can, there's the natural story. And then when you look beyond it, you see it's a prophetic picture of something in the future. And so all through the Bible, they've got these stories. So one of the stories we've already seen, so I won't go into it too much, is uh, the parable of the 10 virgins. The parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, verse 1 to 13. Then... Uh, at the end times, uh, when Jesus comes, the kingdom of heaven shall be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise and five were foolish. And I've taught a little bit on this, uh, but the parable reveals that some will be uh, given access to great intimacy into the marriage feast and some will be excluded. So the things that we need to see in that story, they were all virgins, they were all believers. They all had lamps, they all had oil, they all were waiting for the bridegroom. The lamps are our life that we live before men. They're our, the, the overflow of the life of God within us. The oil represents the presence, tangible presence of God in our life. The bridegroom is Jesus. So the wise ones were wise because they prepared ahead of time and paid the price to have oil. The foolish ones were foolish because they failed to anticipate the coming of the bridegroom. They failed to prepare. The key issue in the parable is really simply this. There is a need to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And if we are prepared, we enter into the, into the marriage supper of the Lamb, into a season of rejoicing, celebrating, festivity of honor and communion with Him. If we're not prepared, we don't enter. It's as simple as that. And the key thing was uh, in that is the foolish one said, well, give us what you've got. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. You have to pay the price to have the oil. There's a price to prepare your heart. It's a price you pay daily, little by little. When you keep your heart right before God, you remain soft and tender and responsive to Him. There's the price in prayer. There's the price in surrender to Him and becoming filled with His presence. So you become a presence carrier. So that's, the, that's one story. And clearly, if you look in that story, some entered, some did not. There was a distinction between people who were believers. Now, there's another one here. Another promise is found in the book of Revelation, and uh, it's found to the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. And uh, Jesus spoke this. He says in Revelation 3 verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, here it is. I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. So what is he saying there? Now, clearly, this is a church. There were things to overcome. And so he's talking to people who overcome, who respond to him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So the key thing here is the door represents our heart or our life. And do we hear Jesus speaking? Notice the strange thing is Jesus is outside of the church when he should be inside the church. He's seeking access to come in. So believers can live a life where they're living and they're in church and they're doing whatever, 
but they're not in intimate relationship with Jesus and he constantly is seeking access to our heart, access to different areas of our life. And so it says the promise here is I will come into him and dine with him. So what does that mean to dine? Again, frequently, if you look at just the natural thing and what it would mean to you, you then get insight of what he's saying. So dining with others, you think about it, it's an opportunity to relax, you laugh together, you enjoy one another, people talk, they open up their hearts, they build relationship around a table. And uh, the early church was really built around a table. So uh, Jesus said, I will dine with them and them with me. What he's saying then is he's promising one of increased access and intimacy to him. And we have that now to some degree, but in the millennium, we will know him in a much greater way. He will reveal more of himself. You ever know when you can be with someone and they don't give away much? And then they suddenly one day open up and let you know a whole lot of things. You think, oh my, I thought I knew you. I hardly know you at all. And he's talking something like that. He said he, the word dine that's used there is the same word in, in Revelation 19.9 that refers to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The word supper comes from that same word dine. So when he says, I will dine with him, he's referring, I will bring you into the marriage supper where there'll be celebration and a place of intimate conversation and friendship. So he's really offering the opportunity for us to enter into a deeper intimacy with him. And that requires that we overcome something. So it's hard to describe what that will be like. It's hard to find words for it. You can think of the happiest meal you've had the funnest time you've had at a meal. Maybe that gives an indication. But this is, let me give you a couple of things. Firstly, David. David said this. David said this. He said that intimacy with Jesus is an indescribable pleasure. This is what he said in Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness or extreme joy. And at your right hand or sitting next to you, there are pleasures that are forevermore. Now see, you'll find many of these verses in the Bible. So he's saying, and he's obviously experienced a measure of it on the earth. He said, when come into the presence of the God, there is an immense joy comes and there's a deep sense of pleasure and fulfillment that comes that makes everything else seem very, very trivial. Uh, here's another one that he wrote, uh, also in Psalm 36 verse eight. Uh, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. So he's saying God's ability to bring pleasure to us is like a river that can't be stopped. So you see the trouble in finding language to describe the depths of intimacy and what it will mean to be in his presence. Most amazing. Then when Paul writes about it, writing about intimacy, he writes and says it's a prize that you win. So yes, we're given a relationship with Jesus now, but you can neglect that relationship. You can take it, take it for granted. You can uh, not really do anything to build it, or you can pursue a greater intimacy. And so in, in uh, Philippians 3 verse 8, he said, I count all things uh, loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, and I've suffered the loss of everything and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So notice two statements in there the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, and everything else is just junk. I want to win this prize of gaining Christ. So now, the key thing in there is that intimacy is given to us in a measure, but the fullness of it is a prize to be won. And so he says, he's just listed all his achievements and how great he was, and then immediately he says, but really, 
that's all junk compared to this. Now, it's all comparative. So people looked at him and he looked like he had his life all together and he looked like he's really you know, reached the peak. He's a rabbi, highly respected. He's got a high place in the, in the society and in the system. He said, it's all junk compared to this. This is really something. I've had a taste of this and this has ruined my life. That the more we taste the Lord, the more it ruins our life. So there's, there's an example of it there. And another um, scripture that refers to, to intimacy is found in the promise to the church at Pergamon. The church at Pergamon, and this promise is made also to overcomers. They had to overcome something in that church. And this is what he said. He that is near to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, which is really a common statement in, in the book of Revelation. What he's saying is you need to develop a heart that listens and responds to God. To him that overcomes, I'll give him some of the hidden manna to eat, Revelation 2.17. Now, you see again uh, the use of a picture language. So if you're not familiar with the pictures or stories in the Bible, this doesn't have anything to mean. To, it doesn't mean anything. But when you look, just look up manna in the Bible, notice he says, I will give him hidden manna to eat. So you really got to ask the question, what is manna? And what is hidden manner? What does he mean by it? So again, when you approach the Bible, just ask the questions. Mm. So what is manner? Well, you read the first reference to manner is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus 16, verse 15. And manner was a food that was supplied supernaturally by God to nourish the people of Israel. It was supernatural food. So Jesus is saying, I'm offering supernatural food to you. And... Uh, in, in, in Exodus sixteen fifteen, when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it is. And Moses said, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. In uh, Psalm 78, 24 and 25, the manna was called the bread of heaven and angels food. So in other words, whatever they ate supernaturally sustained them. It was a provision of God that kept them healthy, kept them alive, kept them vibrant in a difficult journey through a wilderness. So Jesus, of course, you remember, he himself said that he is, Moses gave you that manna, but actually I'm the real manna. So he's, he, then, he then uses the story of manna saying, actually, the real manna is a person. I'm the bread of life. And so he's talking then about intimacy with him is what is like a supernatural food for us. So what's hidden manna? So is there any reference to hidden manna? Well, the word to hide and hidden means just to conceal, of course. So is there any place where manna was hidden or concealed? And it tells us that uh, after the manna was gathered up, they put a portion of manna in a pot and they concealed it or hid it in the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest of holies of the tabernacle. So it was a reminder to Israel of God's miracle provision. And so in the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a box covered in a wooden box covered in gold in which were placed the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, the hidden manna, secret food, hidden supernatural food, and Aaron's rod that budded supernaturally. All of these things are supernatural. The, the tablets were supernaturally given, the manna was supernaturally given, and the Aaron's rod was a dead stick that, that suddenly leafed and had fruit and budded, budded and had fruit. So all of that's supernatural. And the only place it was to be found, no one saw it because it was hidden, it was hidden in the holiest of holies, in the furthermost part of the tabernacle where the glory of God dwelt. So when he says, I'll give him hidden manna, everyone who was listening understood what that meant. Oh man, hidden manna, that means he will take us into the very throne room of God and we will have fellowship 
and we'll be fed and nourished supernaturally there. In other words, this is a, but this is a promise, and it's a promise to overcomers. So notice then he's using different pictures to describe an important promise. Here's another promise also to Pergamon, and this is the promise of a white stone. Revelation 2.17, it's uh, virtually the same verse. Uh, again, he says, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written that no one knows except him who receives it. Now again, to us, that has little uh, reality. It, it, you look at it, and it doesn't have any meaning. But in, the people there knew exactly what it was. So we've got to ask the questions then. What does the white stone refer to? And what does it mean to have a new name written on it? I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written. And no one knows it except the one who receives it. So this is a secret. So what he's going to get, it's got an element which is open, the white stone. There's a part of it which is secret, the name that's written on it. It's a new name. And so what's the white stone? Well, uh, to the people who were, in, uh, who were listening to this, um, they were aware that there were competitions. There were the, the gladiators and the competitions and so on. And anyone who won a great victory in the races or a great victory in the competitions or a great victory in, game, in, in the games or the battles, they were given a white stone. Probably the best thing you say is they got an Olympic medal. You've all seen an Olympic medal. The guy gets the gold. You want to go for gold. When you go for gold, you put up on a dais, the medal's put on, they sing the national anthem. And it's a very emotional, moving thing. Here's a thought. Why is it when New Zealand, our country, wins a medal, a gold medal, and you see them on the dais and the, our national anthem saying, why does it stir something in our heart? What is it in our heart? I mean, it's just a person won a gold medal, what the heck? And yet, when you, when you watch it and hear it, there's an emotion stirs in us. Because deep in our spirit, there's a knowledge of a day to come when you will stand on a dais and be given the white stone that will acknowledge what you have done. And so it was given as a ward of honor, and people who had the white stone were given privileged access to special events and to special meals. So if you had won a white stone or won an Olympic medal, if I use that language, if you'd won your Olympic medal, then everyone knows who you are. Everyone wants to have their picture taken with you. Everyone wants to connect with you. And uh, the, 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 the access or having the stone gave them access to games. It gave them access to festivities, all kinds of things. That word white stone, uh, the word white means to shine or glisten or, or to, be, to be brilliant white. And probably the different stones will be different degrees of honor. And even if you look now at stones, you see different size stones and different quality of diamonds. Whoa, I can tell a good diamond. You can tell it. It's color, it's sparkle. You can see it. So clearly the stones themselves will be, it will acknowledge uh, they're a form of honor. And it says he has a new name written on it. So what does it mean that God's written a new name on the stone? So uh, firstly, again, you have to ask the name, what does a name mean? And then when you look at the, what a name means, then you can go back and then work what a new name might mean. So first of all, your name is the means you identify. Steve, there's Steve, there's Dave, there's Josephine, so on. So we call your name Steve, you know who we called. Everyone knows who we called. In other words, you're identified by your name. And so in the Bible, uh, names always signified the character of a person or something to do with their destiny. So it might, there's uh, it, both for good and for bad. <laughs> So there was a, a Nahash, 
That meant the serpent. He was an Ammonite who came against the people of God. So, so names meant something. Jephthah, the one that breaks through. So frequently names meant their character, what they're like, uh, Peter the rock, or their destiny, what they were called to do. Get the idea? So names then have a meaning. So if God gave a person a new name, ask the question, a new name means a different name. So did Jesus or God give new names or names to anyone? Yes, he did. So what did that mean when he gave him a new name? A new name means a change in relationship or a change in status or a change in role in the kingdom. Get that? A new name. If God gave a person a new name, it meant there was a change in relationship, a change in status, or a change in their role in the kingdom. So think about the stories we know. You'll know them straight away. Abram was renamed Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Sarai, well, Sarai was, was uh, named, renamed Sarah, meaning princess. Jacob was renamed Israel, meaning prevailing with God. Simon was renamed Peter, meaning the rock. So you notice that each time we saw someone in the Bible that got a new name, there was a changed status. There was something to do with the destiny that they were, that they were called into. So quite amazing, really. Now, here's the thing. Jesus himself was given a new name. Wow. So again, you look up new name and every time you find new name, you'll see some insight on it. So uh, in uh, Philippians 2, verse 9 to 10, uh, there's a couple of scriptures on this. Uh, <clears throat> I've got one of them here. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. Philippians 2 verses 9 through to 10. So notice Jesus humbled himself and become obedient to death. Therefore, so notice he's humbled himself and served the purpose of his father. Now there's an exalting. What is the exalting? The exalting is uh, the, the being given a new name. He's lifted up and given a new name. And it says, uh, we'll still know him as Jesus. But the new name then refers to his status. Notice what it says. He's given a name above every other name. In other words, the name of Jesus or his name has been given a high new ranking or status that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and things under the earth. Everyone will bow and acknowledge who he is. So in other words, God has taken Jesus, who has humbled himself, become obedient to death, and now elevated a man who's God and man up to the highest possible place that could ever be had in authority and ranking. So the new name that he receives then, his name's still known as Jesus, but his new name then refers to his new exalted status. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is emperor over all of creation. And uh, he has won that because of his death. So um, he's the eternal emperor. So for God to give you a new name, it will reveal to people uh, giving you a new name means a change in your status or character or God's destiny to you. Interesting, it says a new name that only he knows. That means that God has a secret with you. Secrets are a part of friendship. So the giving of a new name is an altering of status and friendship. Um, here's number five. Uh, Jesus made this promise, the promise of Jesus' new name. Here we got it here in Revelations 3.12. He says, I will write on him my new name. So what does it mean? 
Remember, you just, go, you just ask the questions. What does it mean, write on him? What does it mean, my new name? What does this whole phrase, write on him, my new name, mean? What could it possibly mean? So write on him. To write means you take a pen, you write something down. So we look at it and we see in 2 Corinthians 3.3, he says, you are an epistle or you are the letter ministered to by us, not written with ink, but written by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. So notice he's saying that you've become the letter because God wrote on your heart his life or his character. What does it mean to write on your heart? means the Holy Spirit gives revelation to you. Things you didn't know, God writes in your heart. So Jesus' new name and identity and rank is he's now the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, he's the Emperor. He had a name that no man knew except himself. In other words, he was also awarded a prize for the victory, the white stone. We're following him. So when, when, when what it says when he says, I'll write on you my new name when you overcome, he's saying, I will share with you a deeper level of intimacy. I will lift you to a greater status and I will share some of my authority with you. So again, a lot of these uh, pictures or images overlap with one another, but it primarily speaks of a much greater intimacy. I will write on him my new name. So he will impart revelation to us of who he is, and not only who he is, but also a deeper revelation of Father God. So one of the prizes to be won is a much deeper revelation and intimacy, both with Jesus and with the Father. There's another promise. And again, all of these are out to do with intimacy. He's in Revelations 2, verse 25 to 28, I'll give him the morning star. So it's the promise of the morning star. So what does it mean, the morning star? Again, just ask the question, what could that possibly mean? Firstly, in nature, what does it mean? And secondly, is there a reference to it in the Bible? So firstly, in nature, the morning star is the brightest star in the sky. You just see it before the dawning of a new day. It's usually the one lowest on the horizon, and it's the beginning of the new day. And uh, so, But the morning star in the Bible is a reference to Jesus Christ himself. Here it is. It says in Revelation 22, 16, uh, he said, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So, so Jesus himself. So in other words, he's saying that he himself is your reward. So what does it mean? He is your reward. It means a greater level of intimacy and relationship and knowing. He will reveal more of himself. So you can see then if the reward, one of the significant rewards in eternity is a much deeper closeness and intimacy and knowledge and revelation of Jesus that brings fulfillment and honor into our life. Now's the time to develop intimacy. If you don't, if you, if intimacy with the Lord is not your passion now, it's hardly ever going to be a reward because you won't seek it. So I put this one first because rather than just wanting this, wanting that from God, he wants us to want him. He said to Abraham, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Abraham had just given up everything. And he says, okay, I'm your reward. When you got me, you got access to everything. So don't seek the everything, seek me. A huge difference it makes. That makes sense? So I've put a few questions in the study to get you thinking about your relationship with the Lord and intimacy. So that brings us to the second one. I need to move on on this. It's got a bit in this one too. The second one that we mentioned is the area of eternal authority. Eternal authority. 
So eternal again, what does eternal mean? Eternal means that you will be, it, it is no time limit on it. It never expires. It goes on and on and on and on. That once you're on that journey, right now we're in time. When you go into the millennial kingdom, you're in eternity, then it never stops. It just goes on. So right now we're ruled by time, then we're not ruled by time. So the Bible makes it clear that believers will rule with Christ uh, for a thousand years. Uh, I saw thrones and the saints, or they sat on them and judgment was given to them and they lived and reigned with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 24 to 6, they shall reign with him a thousand years. So in the book of Revelation, it says there is a thousand year period, a millennium means a thousand year period. And Jesus will come to the earth and rule over the earth, but it's not just on his own. It will be in partnership. So when we understand more about the millennium and what will happen and what will precede it, and then our part in the millennium, it inspires us then to actually overcome the trials of life. So the first thing to see about the millennium is that it's a thousand year period. The second thing is to see is that Jesus in that period when he returns will be king over all kings. He will be king over all kings. So that means he will exercise rulership over all the kings of the earth. Now, right now, we don't see that. Right now, he has the title to it, but when he returns, he will exercise it, which we'll get to in a, in a little minute. In Ephesians 1.21, it says, uh, after his resurrection, he's been raised far above all principality and power, might and dominion, every name that is named, not only this age, the one that is to come. In other words, he's been made king over everything. Revelation 19.16 says he's king of kings and lord of lords. Here's another one, Psalm 72.11 all kings will fall down before him. All nations will serve him. Now, you look at the news, you look at all the things happening in the world, you think, wow. Now, something dramatic's got to change for that to happen. And, and it is. We'll touch on it tonight. And uh, it says, so Jesus right now is at the right hand of God and rules, but his leadership in the earth is not fully manifest yet. So you see, like when we cast demons out, then there's a little of his leadership is seen. When we see miracles, a little bit of his leadership is seen. When people's lives are transformed, saved and healed and delivered, so on, you see his kingdom advancing and so on. But we haven't seen what it will look like when it manifests fully. So when he comes, his authority, he will manifest authority with consequences. Now, we're not used to seeing that, but when you look in the Bible, you will see it. What I mean is this, authority with consequences means... He has the power to enforce his will on the earth. Now, right now, he's, he's demonstrating his kingdom is a kingdom of love. And he draws people into love relationship to honor him and serve him and become like him. But when he returns, it will be with power and it will be with majesty. So he came to earth the first time as the lamb. He will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There is a change He's still the same person, but there's a change in the aspect we will see of him. And so that means all will yield to his authority and his right to rule, or they will face the consequences. That's an extraordinary thing to consider. You look at the paper, you see all these people, and you see their pride, you see the arrogance, you see the posturing, you see the manipulation, you see all the injustice. But there is a time when all will yield to his authority or face consequences. Now, I won't develop that much. I'll talk on perhaps on the Millennial Kingdom a bit more. But you know, here's a scripture here. And um, I just lost where it come from. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his, right, of his wrath. So that means when, if leaders of nations won't yield, they'll die. 
in Psalm 110.6, He shall judge among the nations, he shall fill the places with dead bodies, he shall execute the heads of many countries. Now you notice he's talking there about not the aspect of God, which is the kindness and mercy and compassion. He's talking now, he's coming to impose his kingdom in the earth. He's coming to exercise his right to rule. He won the right to rule first by creating. He won the right to rule by his death on the cross and by God honoring him and giving them that right. He holds it back to grow a people who will be prepared, ready for him. And then that time in his coming, there's going to be manifestations of power we haven't seen before. So that brings us to the next theme, point three. It says, before his coming, there'll be a time of great tribulation on the earth. In Matthew 24, we see things. He says in verse six to eight, you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end has not come. And then he says what the end will look like. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. These are just the beginning of the sorrows. Verse 21, for then there'll be great tribulation such as never been seen since the beginning of the world until this time and shall never ever be. In other words, he's saying that before his coming, there will be a period of vast destruction and suffering in the earth before he comes. The Bible describes in Revelation, he will open seals in heaven and this will unleash on the earth all kinds of devastation. The Bible talks about a third of the earth's population being destroyed by the things that come on the earth. Now that's another whole teaching of its own. We teach about the day of the Lord. And it's hard for us to comprehend that until you go into the Bible and see, has these things ever happened before? When you go back and ask, did these things ever happen before? Did God ever bring judgments into the earth like that? And the answer is, yes, he did. In the days of Noah, which is also a picture of the coming of the Lord, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. It said the flood overtook them all. So in the days of Noah, the whole earth was covered with a flood and a handful were saved. Uh, there are other examples of that as well. So because there's a period of vast destruction, going to need to be a period of restoration. So that's where we come in. We are part of the judgments in the earth and we're part of the restoration. So when Jesus returns again, as I mentioned before, he comes the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelations 5.5. And uh, we notice there in the book of Revelation, it describes him coming. Look at this. He says, now this is when he comes. He says, I saw in verse uh, Revelation 19.11 to 16, he said, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was faithful and true. That's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So when he comes back next time, it won't be peace to all men. It is war. So good to be on his side, not good to be not on his side. Said his, uh, he said, his eyes were a flame of fire and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew except himself. Clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. He's very clearly Jesus. Now look at this. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, quite white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies of heaven. White linen, clean and white. That's what the bride has given in Revelation 19. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That means his word that he should strike nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That means his rule will be unbending. People will have to yield to it. He himself treads the winepress and fierceness of the wrath of God. He has a robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So notice then he's saying there will be an inevitable confrontation and conflict with anyone who resists him. So when he came, 
in the first time it was as to demonstrate the lamb nature, meekness, humility, the suffering servant. When he comes back again, he will come as the lion. He will come to confront kingdoms. He will come to transform the earth. And there's a couple of examples, more than one example in the Bible of it. Here's one, David preached on it. Um, Moses' confrontation and conflict with Pharaoh over the release of God's people from bondage. Moses was a natural ruler of the most wealthy and influential empire in the world, yet one man forced him to bow and let go everything. How did that happen? He carried sonship authority, carried sonship power. The guy had to yield or lose everything. Uh, we see it in Elijah's confrontation with the false prophets of Baal. He called fire from heaven. So you understand when God is backing you and the supernatural power is available at this kind of level, people can't say no. If they say no, there's a big problem. You understand that? Once you start to look, you start to look in the Bibles and you'll start to see the stories then of these confrontations of kingdom against kingdom, they all have pictures of the end time of kingdoms and conflict. And Jesus himself will, will overcome all resistance to his rule and establish his kingdom on the earth. He will partner with believers to do that. Okay, so here's the fifth point, number five. Uh, and uh, it says, um, uh, Jesus will establish his rule over, the world, over a worldwide kingdom. So there will be a one world government. It'll be in Jerusalem. It'll be Jesus in charge. And he'll have a, a, a team. He'll have people who help him administer his government. All governments require people to administer it. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, in uh, Revelation, it says, uh, Jesus Christ was the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So he will establish rulership over two types of kings. There'll be resurrected kings, resurrected believers. So that'll be you and me resurrected in a, in a resurrection body. Therefore, can't be hurt, can't be killed, can't be even captured. See, can you imagine See, living in a resurrection body in an earth where people are not resurrected? There's nothing can harm you. There's nothing. You, you can move, transport from one place to another. We'll look at that. We'll look at the resurrection. You can, you can move. There's no, nothing can hold you back. No sickness can touch you. No, no one can kill you. It's like impossible to cause any problem to you. So you understand then Jesus will have a company of people in resurrection bodies, but then there'll also be natural kings and they will be guided by and directed by people. They may not want to yield to them, but they will have to. Just like all kings have advisors. So um, together there'll be, uh, it says in Isaiah 61 verse 4, they'll rebuild the old ruins, raise up the former desolations, repair the ruined cities, the desolation of many generations. So in the season of the millennium, there'll be uh, every aspect of society will be changed. Now just think about the task of doing that, the task of changing government just alone, laws, the legal system, the financial, economic systems, which are manipulated, the, the education systems, the media, the, the entertainment, the sports, community, religion. Think of all the aspects that make up a society. Someone has to change all that. Who is going to change all of that? Well, God is preparing believers. He has them from every age since the beginning. He will have people prepared. The thing that will differ will be what role you have. And uh, so... Number six, uh, Jesus' government won't be instantaneous, um, but it will be progressive, will progressively increase. So when he comes, you can't just suddenly click your fingers. You're not going to click his fingers and make everything change. He could do that now. 
He doesn't want to do that. He wants to raise you up. He wants to raise people up. He wants to raise people up who he can share his authority with, who will partner with him. And they'll come from every generation that have ever lived. There'll be a people arise, some resurrected and some changed now that they're alive. Notice in Daniel, um, it tells us in Isaiah 9, 7, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. In other words, his government or his kingdom will increase without ever stopping. So that opens up the prospect that even what we see is not the limit of what God is going to create or have for us to rule over. In Daniel 2 and verse 35, he says uh, uh, Daniel had a vision of the end times and it was a vision, uh, uh, an image he saw. He saw a stone come and shatter the image and he said, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. That stone is the kingdom of God. So he had a vision. Uh, we haven't got time to go into that, but the vision that, he, that Nebuchadnezzar saw, he was the ruler of Babylon, and there was a vision of a head of, old, uh, of iron and, and so on, silver and gold, right down through the feet of, um, of clay and brass. And then he saw a picture of a, of a small rock come and shatter the feet of this uh, image, and the whole thing collapsed. So when you look historically, every one of the parts of the body that were mentioned represent a kingdom except when we get to the last ones, which refers to a kingdom originating in Europe from Rome, probably made up of 10 countries. So it hasn't yet come into being. Many people thought it'd be the EEC, then the EU and so on, but it's, it's a collaboration of nations that hasn't yet come. And he says in the days of those kings, he said, God will set up a kingdom and it will invade the whole earth. So in other words, there's gonna be massive conflict, massive, massive, massive conflict. There's no other, no other way. So people get, as David was saying, you know, you can't run with the footman. How are you going to handle the horseman? It's very, very rare. He's saying, this is, yeah, the horse, this is really, this is really little stuff uh, compared to what's coming. And so uh, the Bible tells us in Daniel 7, verse 27, and it says, Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, I can't develop more on that, but that's a great verse if you look at it in your Bible. He's saying that all of the kingdoms will become his kingdom, and every dominion, every realm over which anyone rules will become his domain, and they will serve and obey him. So we get then to the applications of this, and of course, faithfulness in this life determines the level of authority you'll carry in the millennial reign. So every one of us has got different responsibility and assignments in the millennial kingdom. Everyone, everyone. You think of what it takes to run a nation. You've got to have people do all kinds of jobs, all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. And so there's going, to be, there's going to be a place for everyone. God's big enough to make that happen. So uh, in Revelation 26, it says, we'll be priests and gods and reign with him a thousand years. Means, that means we have an authority to bring about change or transformation. In Luke 19.17, someone was put over 10 cities. Luke 19.19, someone was over five cities. In Revelations 2.26, some will give power over the nations. Revelations 3.21, some will sit with me in my throne. Now, the thing I want you to see from there is this. There are many different realms of authority. Some will sit in his throne with him. Some will have authority to change nations. Well, there's only so many nations in the world, a couple of hundred. So there's only a couple of hundred people going to be doing that. And then there'd be others have authority over 10 cities, over five cities, and then over less and less and less and less and less. So he's saying then that what we do now, 
determines the level we will operate at in the coming kingdom. So faithfulness now in serving determines what responsibility and authority we have in the coming kingdom. And uh, I'd like you to read when you have time, Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27, which is the parable, not unlike the talents parable, which is a slightly different one. It's the parable of the pounds or miners. And a serpent nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and return. The nobleman's Jesus. The country is heaven. He's gone to receive a kingdom and return. He tells his servants, occupy or do business till I come. In other words, every believer, God doesn't want you just mucking around, enjoying a nice service. He wants you to be busy with your gifts, your time, your resources, engaged in advancing the kingdom, representing Jesus. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded the servants who had given money and called them that he know, might know how much each man had gained by trading, Luke 19, 13. So everyone will be called when the Lord returns, what did you do? And he will, in another session, I'll, I'll show you what he takes into account, which is quite a relief, really. You think, oh my goodness, even takes our weaknesses into account. So he takes lots of things into account in working this out. He's a righteous judge. So everyone will give account. And so our faithfulness will be acknowledged and then rewarded. So if you've been productive and fruitful in this life, you will then be productive and fruitful, given authority in the next. What about people who are not? What about people who resist them? He said, bring these enemies of mine that did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So people who fight against God in this age, there's going to be a problem for them when he returns. So they'll meet an untimely death. So you see then, in the, that's a great parable to study. It's a parable of the coming kingdom. There's lots of truths hidden in the parable. The core of it is that faithfulness now is required. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful over few things, rule over many. So in order then for us to participate ruling with Jesus, we have to overcome now. Now is the day. Every day presents a new challenge to overcome. Uh, it's a great honor that we have been given. Our eternal destiny is the throne of God himself. Notice what he says in Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I'll grant them to sit in my throne as I also overcame. It's overcoming is the big issue. He who overcomes and keeps my works till the end, I give him power over the nations. Now notice in all of these great promises, they're very, very big, mind-blowing promises, but at the core of them all, you have to overcome. Mm. There's always something to overcome. And the book of Revelation 2 and 3 tells you what all the end-time churches have got to overcome. And so it's not automatic. It doesn't come to every believer. It's promised for those who overcome. You overcome losing your first love. You maintain passion. You overcome in trials and don't quit. You think of people you know in church, one little thing and they quit. Mm -hmm. you know, what? You, you, it's just like you don't understand what's at stake here. Uh, compromise. You think of many people are compromised. They're just living one foot in the church, one foot in the world, one in the kingdom, one outside the kingdom. That's not going to cut it. We need to live strongly. The book of Revelation says that we must overcome the works of Jezebel. And right now in this current season, there's been an increasing emphasis on the activity of the spirit of Jezebel, that controlling power. We have to learn how to overcome that in our personal life and whatever we're doing. So uh, there's all these things we need to overcome, spiritual apathy and indifference and complacency. So there are huge and immense promises made for us. These promises are eternal, eternal intimacy, mm. pleasure being in his presence, joy forevermore. Can you imagine 
being in his prayer, everything fades away. You think of even the meetings we've had where you felt overwhelmed by the presence of God. Everything that worried your life fell away as you enjoyed his presence and wept and you felt his love. Mm. Now imagine multiplying that. 100, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000. Multiply that. Mm. It'll be worth it. That's why it talks about the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin is enjoyable. You know, you enjoy it, but it's only for a season. It says for Moses, he turned away from the pleasures of sin for a season because he had respect for the reward. So Moses got a revelation of this reward. That's why he gave up Egypt. Tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, he gave it, he forsook Egypt by faith because he had uh, choosing to endure affliction with the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin for a season for he had respect for the recompense of the reward. See, there it is right there. Moses understood there is a big reward for me giving up. Imagine him, what he's giving up. He's giving up, sitting in a throne next to Pharaoh, ruling over a nation, wealth, everything at his disposal. He's in charge of armies. He's got everything you could imagine, and he gave it all up because he saw what God was offering. For a season or eternal? That's what the choice is. Seasonal or eternal? When you fix your eyes on the eternal, it motivates you to overcome no matter what anyone else is doing. I will be faithful. I will develop intimacy. I will hold my ground. I will overcome the challenges of life because I have respect for the reward that God has. The reward of eternal intimacy, the reward of eternal authority. Well, bless you. There's the study.